Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Um, my guest today is a podcaster himself, Dr. David Jockers, J-O-C-K-E-R-S. Uh, he, he has a website, drjockers.com, and we're going to talk about uh, the keto metabolic breakthrough. Dr. Jockers, he's a uh, doctor of natural medicine, uh, functional nutritionist, and a corrective care chiropractor as well. His website's very popular in uh, the health world. He gets over a million visits monthly, and he's been seen on popular media like Dr. Oz Show, Hallmark Home and Family, etc. Uh, he has a best-selling book specifically called The Keto Metabolic Breakthrough and The Fasting Transformation. So we're going to talk about his work. So thanks for coming, Dave. Hey, thanks for having me on, Richard. Yeah, tell me about your uh, your health journey. You, you know, I don't think you were born keto, so, so yeah. how did it happen to you? No, actually, uh, you know, I was... My, my mom was always into natural health. So uh, we always had a garden growing up and my mom studied, she was a nurse. And then she was studying midwifery and massage therapy. And eventually she be, actually became a naturopath. And so kind of along her journey, she started really getting into nutrition. And uh, as an athlete growing up, she inspired me to eat healthy really by telling me about the performance benefits. You know, I didn't like kale, for example. And she would say, well, you should eat your kale because it's going to give you more energy. And for me, I was like, okay, more energy. I want to be stronger. I'm going to eat this. And so, you know, so I grew up in a pretty healthy household, but I always struggled with gut issues and it really hit the wall. I was a personal trainer in my early twenties, got into fitness and I was eating six, seven meals a day, you know, just tons of calories to try to maintain my weight. I've always been slightly underweight, but try to maintain my weight and build muscle. I thought I needed to eat all, all this food and I ended up developing irritable bowel syndrome to the point where I lost 30 pounds. So I went from about 165 pounds and I'm five foot 11 to 135 pounds. So I lost a lot of weight, even though I was trying to exercise, trying to lift weights, still trying to eat. I just had terrible gut cramping and pain. And, um, and I also developed something called orthostatic hypotension where I go from sitting to standing and I would be really, really dizzy. And so I was very alarmed at all this. My blood pressure was really low. And you know, I started making some nutrition changes. And uh, I came across a book called The Maker's Diet. I was also following some other people. This is around 2005, 2004. And um, I took out grains. That was one of the big things that I took away was grains. I changed the fats that I ate. I got rid of anything with corn oil, soybeans, safflower, cottonseed, any of these industrial oils. And I started really focusing in on eating a lot of olive oil, coconut oil, avocados, so eating healthy fats. And then I switched my meat. So I was actually really a vegetarian. I would eat fish, but I would eat a lot of like soy burgers and stuff like that before I thought that was healthy. And I actually went and I started consuming grass-fed beef, organic meat products. And I also started doing something called intermittent fasting. Now, I didn't know the term for it. There was no, nobody was really talking about it. I just realized I felt better when I drank a lot of water in the morning and I did not eat. And I would actually drink a lot of water and then I would wait until all of a sudden I got hungry, which is usually around two or three o'clock in the afternoon. 
And then I would eat from there till about seven o'clock, right? So it was kind of like a form of time-restricted feeding where I would eat in like a four to five hour eating window. And what that did was it took a lot of stress off of my gut lining and allowed it to heal itself. And then of course, eating less inflammatory foods by taking out the grains, the bad oils, all the, the soy and all that kind of stuff. And uh, following a, a nutrition plan like that gave me the nutrients my body needed. And I started absorbing those nutrients I gained my weight back in a course of about six months, felt better than ever. And so I was in graduate school to be a chiropractor to begin with. And this got me really passionate about nutrition, a holistic lifestyle. And, um, and so when I graduated, I opened a health center um, out here in Georgia and uh, started teaching people all these natural principles. Now, I worked really hard in the beginning. I, were, I was working like 70, 80 hours. I actually opened my clinic in 2000, early 2009. I couldn't get a business loan because the economy had crashed. So I opened it on credit cards. And um, you know, basically, I was in $170,000 of debt. I was living in my clinic, and I was working around the clock. I was single, and I was very successful. I was able to pay off all that debt in the course of two years, very successful, helping lots of people, but living a very unbalanced life. And I ended up developing skin cancer. Now, my grandfather actually died of metastatic melanoma. So his skin cancer had spread throughout his body into his bones. And I grew up in Florida on the beach. I'd been sunburned more than somebody should be. And so I, I realized this, you know, that obviously this is this was a devastating thing. I need to, I need to really look at, look at and take inventory of my life and my health. And I was working so many hours. I wasn't sleeping well. I was being exposed to different toxins and I would also binge because I would work really long days and, you know, I'd be finished working at like eight thirty, nine o'clock and I would binge eat and it was healthy, like stuff people would think was healthy, but I was just eating late at night and more carbohydrates than my body really tolerates well. And, uh, and so I found a book called, uh, the metabolic theory of cancer. I read that book and I was also following a guy named Dr. Joe Mercola, who's really well known in the natural health space. And he was talking yeah. about this uh, ketogenic diet. And uh, so I, this is around 2011. So I started following this. And uh, in the course of about three months, I was at the cancer that was forming. It was on the side of my nose, uh, completely went away. And, uh, and I did several other things as well, different supplements, fasting regimens, and um, you know healed it naturally. And so ever since then, I've been teaching... Uh, you know, the benefits of a ketogenic lifestyle, ketosis, intermittent fasting, and incorporating this along with functional medicine practices where we really look at optimal ranges on, uh, on labs to really understand how somebody is functioning and healing. And, uh, you know, started my website really early on, but, you know, it took off for on a life of its own around 2015 or so. And, um, you know, later sold my clinic and just run my website now, putting out really great health information. You mentioned my podcast, my YouTube channel. Um, I have several different programs, best-selling books, teaching a lot of functional medicine principles and also teaching people how to get into ketosis, practice intermittent fasting and stimulate deep cellular healing. Well, let's get into some particulars. Um, have you tried to go carnivore or has keto been successful for you? Is there, you know, a different level of just low carb and not necessarily keto? Like, have you gone back or, you know, have you moved within a range of, uh, of a ketogenic diet and found a more optimal one for you or is keto it? Yeah, that's a really great question, Richard. And I think about it like a bell curve. I think that in the middle of the bell curve, I think most people can do really well on what's called a cyclical ketogenic diet. And that means... You get into ketosis, okay, maybe let's say, you know, for a month or so, and then you 
consume more carbohydrates, you boost up your insulin, you get out of ketosis for a few days, and then you get back into ketosis for a few days and you kind of cycle back and forth. I think the majority of our population could really thrive on that sort of a plan. Now on the other end, like let's say the very far left end of the bell curve, there's people who you know really do thrive on a higher carbohydrate, lower fat, like more of a vegan style diet. But you know, it's I don't think it's a large percentage of the population. Maybe 15 to 20 percent of the population might might do well with really like these outliers, kind of in that zero to five percent that can really do that full time, right? I don't think most people can do that full time. On the other end of the spectrum, the very far right of that bell curve, you've got you know 15 to 20% that can do really well on a very, very meat-centric kind of carnivore-style diet with the outliers like that zero to 5% that really can thrive. Um, and I know that for the listeners, they may be surprised to hear this on really like an all-meat diet. And there's people out there that are doing this that are doing really, really well with their health. Okay. Now, again, I think it's an outlier. I think it's, you know, on the very extreme end, but uh, I do think that there's people that can do that. For me, I definitely do better on a higher protein ketogenic diet, but I'm still in that bell curve where I don't really need to stay in ketosis all the time. You know, I tend to have lower insulin at this point. My body's very insulin sensitive. I live a very healthy lifestyle. I practice intermittent fasting. I exercise regularly to where if I have a little bit more carbohydrates, like your typical ketogenic diet is less than 50 grams of net carbs. And in some cases, depending on the insulin sensitivity of the individual, it might be less than 20 grams of net carbs in order to produce a therapeutic level of ketones, which is roughly, uh, if you measure it in the blood, 0.5 millimoles or above or greater. Most people need a very, very, very strict diet in order to do that. For me, from time to time, I can go up to 150, 200 grams of carbohydrates and then you know, really get back into a ketogenic state the next day. Now for, you know, several hours after eating those carbohydrates, my insulin is going to be high. So my body's not going to be producing the ketones. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. But shortly after, you know, maybe uh, 12 to 16 hours after, my ketone levels are going to start to rise and get into, you know, the um, nutritional ketosis range. So my body's very metabolically flexible to where it's good at burning sugar and fat. And that's really ultimately where I'd love to get everybody, you know, everybody that I'm working with. It's ultimately where we want to get people. But some people have more metabolic damage early on, you know, that needs to be reversed before they can get there. But I, de oh, I definitely do better, Richard, on a higher protein higher animal protein style diet. I do enjoy a lot of vegetables. And so, you know, I eat a lot of avocados. I eat a lot of steamed broccoli and I love artichokes and I love hearts of palm and all kinds of stuff like that that are lower carbohydrate vegetables. But uh, yeah, I haven't needed to go carnivore. Fortunately, some people have done that and done really well. And, uh, you know, I'm also able to cycle in and out of ketosis. 
Well, what have you noticed in the differences in, um, you know, in patients, people you work with? Do women tend to be uh, better with more vegetables and less protein? You know, do men tend to be better with more fat or more protein? Like, what are the differences? Are young or old? Or yeah, you know, just very individualistic. It's very individualistic. I wish it was easy enough to say, you know, women do better with this, men do better with this. It unfortunately is not. Now, what I do know is that women, based on their menstrual cycle, we do a feast famine cycling that goes along with their cycle. So for example, day one of a woman's 28 day cycle, day one would be the first day that they start to menstruate. Okay. Day 14 is the day of ovulation when their egg drops. And then, so based on that scale, that schedule, the best time for a woman to be in a state of ketosis where they can do fasting or eat a very low carb diet is between day one through 10, 11, roughly around there. So right when they start menstruating up until maybe like two or three days before they start, before they go into ovulation. Now to, to ovulate, you need to produce a lot of hormones. Insulin really helps boost hormones. We're going we're gonna to create more insulin if we eat more carbohydrate. So what I have women do is women who are in, in their menstrual cycle, I'll have them eat more carbohydrates, healthy carbohydrates, sweet potatoes, fruit, you know, yams, things like that, trying to really get their carbohydrates up around 150 grams or so, really roughly between day 11 through maybe day 17 on their cycle. So like around a week there, they're eating higher carbohydrates. Then we go low carb again between day 17, 18 and up through like day 22. So like five days or so. We're going low carb again, so we can regain insulin sensitivity. And then the last week before they menstruate, we need to build hormones again. You need a lot of estrogen to be built. Insulin helps trigger the release of more estrogen. So most women will tell you they have more cravings the week before they menstruate. And that's because they're trying to build those hormones. So we feast, we eat higher amount of carbohydrates, higher amount of calories that week before and um, most women notice that they feel so good with this and it really helps improve their insulin sensitivity. And it's a really a lifestyle that they feel like they can follow. They can do intermittent fasting. If they want to do an extended, like a three or five day fast, they know when to time that. They know it's, it's best to do between, you know, day one through 11 of their cycle or day 17 through 22, right? And then the other days they need to be feasting. And so it's, uh, it's something that they can kind of, you know, basically follow it's sustainable and it helps them get the benefits of ketosis, the improved insulin sensitivity, the improved fat burning, the brain health benefits, the energy benefits, while at the same time, not having hormone dysfunction. Cause I have seen a lot of women and it doesn't happen to all women. Cause again, there's that bell curve. There's still this, you know, 20% of women that do amazing just being in ketosis all the time. And somehow they still have menstrual cycles or thyroid works well. But, you know, for the 80%, they just, you know, they're going to struggle if they're in ketosis all the time. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So for those women, they notice that they just do a lot better. They don't have their hair falling out and um, the fatigue that happens for a lot of women when they're in long-term ketosis, when they're doing this sort of menstrual cycle, feast, famine cycling. So that is what I found, you know, for men, women that are not menstruating, like if they're um, in post-menopause, you know, typically we'll, we'll cycle out roughly like once a week or once every two weeks, you know, roughly between once every seven to 15 days, do a higher carb a day, 
uh, just to kind of boost up some insulin so you can get, you know, even when you're in, in menopause, you still are producing some estrogen and progesterone, just a lot less than when you're menstrual, when you're going through your menstrual cycle. So we still need a boost from time to time. So doing something like that and kind of finding the right rhythm for one person, they might feel better, uh, doing a carb cycle once a week for somebody else, they might feel better and get better health results doing it once every two weeks or once a month. Um, and some people might need two or three times a week, you know, so trying to really figure out what's going to work best for that individual. Um, you believe in, uh, using exogenous ketones, you know, drinking them powders or anything, or does that really, if it's done right, is there no need for that kind of stuff? Yeah, I don't think, I don't think you need it, Richard, but I do think it, it provides a great advantage. So especially in the early stages of keto adaptation, if your body is, metabolically inflexible and it's used to burning sugar for fuel. And now you want to teach it to burn fat for kind of like exercise. There's an uncomfortable period, right? If you're sedentary and then you go in the gym and you get a workout in, you know, if you challenge yourself with that workout, it's going to be uncomfortable and you're going to probably be sore for a few days. Well, it's kind of the same thing when you try to challenge your metabolism to burn fat for fuel. There's an adaptation period during that adaptation period, sometimes people feel really bad. Some people feel great right away, but a lot of people don't feel good. And that's because they have hypoglycemic episodes because their body's not yet good at burning fat and creating ketones. Their insulin's still elevated and, they, and, and yet their blood sugar's low. That can be an issue. Perhaps they don't have enough electrolytes. You know, There's several different issues that play into that. But exogenous ketones provide a provide ketones, right? So before your body is good at creating ketones and actually using them for energy, getting more ketones in the system, those ketones will actually pass through the blood brain barrier. And the main organ system that needs ketones, if you're following a low carb diet is your brain. I mean, that's really the reason why your body creates ketones because all the other cells, right? So our muscle cells, our liver cells, they can all use fatty acids as an energy source. And they do on a regular basis, but fatty acids cannot cross through the blood brain barrier. Ketones are a water soluble byproduct that your liver produces from fatty acid metabolism. And these compounds can slip through the blood brain barrier and the brain, the nerve cells in the brain can use them for energy. In fact, they're a preferred energy source because they're very clean energy. They produce significant amounts of energy way more than glucose burning sugar and significantly less oxidative stress and metabolic waste. Meaning that they get, it's like a a car that gets incredible performance and at the same time, better gas mileage and less carbon emissions, right? Like that's the ideal. It's a dream. And so that's really what ketones do for our brain and for our body. And so that's the benefit there. So providing some exogenous ketones, which are basically synthetically created ketones that mimic the ketones that our body naturally creates can really help in that adaptation stage. Because as our body kind of relearns how to use ketones for an energy source, you know, it's like a learning, you know, we, we got to upregulate certain enzymes. The body's always adapting. So when we change our diet from a, like, let's say a high carbohydrate standard American diet to a very low carb, high fat ketogenic diet, that's a stressor on the body. So there's a learning period while we adapt and the exogenous ketones can make that more comfortable. So that's one area that I think uh, ketones really benefit. Number two is athletes. So athletes, ketones provide a great fuel source for the brain when you're doing like high intensity activity for a long period of time. It's natural for your blood sugar to, to, to start to lower. A lot of times athletes are turning to, you know, sports drinks and things like that that are loaded with sugar. 
and they're consuming these and they're creating actually more oxidative stress and driving up more inflammation. Mm. Now they're taking it because they need energy, right? So they need glucose or they need something to produce energy with. So I get that, but they're actually creating more inflammation and oxidative stress. So if they took the exogenous ketones, they would get the energy because ketones are an energy molecule. They also get electrolytes in there because these are salts, ketone salts. They're connected to magnesium and sodium and potassium and things like that. And um, they won't get the uh, same level of oxidative stress. So their performance will be better. Their endurance will be better and their recovery will be better. So I think they really provide athletes a great super fuel. And also on top of that, you know, just for the average individual, I don't think you need it once you're keto adapted. However, I consume them on a regular basis. So I just like them. I like getting some in my, in my, uh, I put some in my drink after lunch. So I typically am eating two meals a day. I usually don't eat breakfast and then I eat lunch around one o'clock. When I'm finished with lunch, I, I drink a drink with some exogenous ketones, some extra magnesium, and it helps me have more energy in the afternoon. A lot of people notice like an afternoon slump. I just notice that my energy is a lot better late, you know, as I get into my afternoon hours. So I'm able to perform at a higher level. Like I drank my exogenous ketone drink, maybe 45 minutes ago or so. And I just, I feel great, you know, doing this interview, my brain feels really mentally alive. And uh, I think the ketones, maybe they give me like an extra 10% boost, which, you know, I'm all for that. Well, good. What are the hurdles that people go through when uh, they're trying to get on this program and this plan with you? Like what's some of the most difficult stuff that they have to overcome and what are some tricks you have for helping them? Yeah. Well, obviously the first thing is just the education gap. So most people have been trained to think that fat is bad, that fat causes heart disease, right? So when I tell them, Hey, you should be eating grass fed butter and, you know, eat your steaks. And of course, you know, I'm telling them to get high quality animal foods, organic grass fed has the right fatty acid ratios, really good for the body. A lot of people have to get over the idea that these things actually don't cause problems in the body. It's actually inflammation and oxidative stress that end up causing heart disease and degenerative conditions. And the main nutritional drivers of inflammation, oxidative stress, number one are carbohydrates, high carbs. So high sugar, high starch, because that drives up insulin. And insulin is a growth hormone. It's a hormone that signals growth. It signals uh, cell division. It signals fat storage, doesn't allow us to break down fat. And on top of that, it drives up inflammatory gene pathways in the body. So we activate more inflammation. So we got to get insulin down. So we need less carbs, less sugar. Now, the other, the other two things that drive up inflammation from a nutritional perspective are bad fats. We were taught to think that saturated fat was bad, but actually it's not. It's actually the industrial oils, the high omega-6 damaged rancid fats. We're going to find those in corn oil, soybean oil, safflower oil, cottonseed oil, peanut oil. So canola oil is another one. We want to avoid these things. Where do you find those? You find them in processed foods. You also find them in a lot of common condiments. If you're looking at your salad dressings, mayonnaise, you know, things like that. You want to avoid these kind of oils. They drive up inflammation. So we want to avoid those. You said, you said rancid, but are they yeah. rancid by definition or yeah, the way they, they're stored, they tend to get rancid? Yes, both actually. They're rancid by definition that the, the, the way they extract them actually causes them to become damaged because these are polyunsaturated fats. Saturated fats have a very high oxidative stability. That means that they don't oxidize. Oxidizing fats creates rancid fats. 
the more double bonds a fatty acid has, the more fragile it is to oxidation. Saturated fats have zero double bonds. A monounsaturated fat, like what we find in olive oil, has one double bond. It's pretty stable because it only has one double bond and it's right in the middle of the structure. Polyunsaturated fats have multiple double bonds. They typically have two to six double bonds in them, depending on you know which type of polyunsaturated fat we're looking at. And so the further, the more double bonds and the further they are towards the end of the um, fatty acid, the more oxidized, the easier it is to oxidize it, the lower oxidative stability. So the most easily oxidized is actually omega-3 fats, particularly DHA, which is what we find in fish oil, which is a really therapeutic oil, therapeutic fat, DHA. However, it's also very prone to oxidation. That's why obviously you would never want to cook fish oil. You want to keep it in your refrigerator. You want it to be in like a glass bottle that's you know, not prone to like, it needs to be a dark glass bottle. So light doesn't get exposed to it, things like that. So with that said, these oils, these corn, you know, soybean oil, they use really high heat extraction, right? They should be using cold molecular distillation, but these are oils that are created really cheap. And that's actually why they, they make them because they, the government subsidizes the production of corn and soy and food manufacturers are not thinking about the actual rancidity of the oil. So they're just thinking about cost cutting measures. And that's why they're in all these things. So we want to avoid those. All right. And we want to consume more of the healthy saturated fats, coconut oil, grass fed butter. So butter, when it's from grass fed cows, has a lot of nutrients in it. When, grouse, when cows eat grass, they, uh, they bioaccumulate omega-3 fatty acids, conjugated linoleic acid, which is an incredible fat for burning fat, helps stimulate your metabolism, great for your immune system. They have vitamin A, uh, the fat-soluble vitamin A, retinol, vitamin D, vitamin E. They have choline, which is great for your brain. So it's really good stuff. Same thing with like pasture-raised eggs. That's all healthy stuff. Avocados, olives, olive oil really good, healthy fats. So that's what we want to stick with. The third thing nutritionally that drives up inflammation is toxins, toxins in our nutrition. Now that's kind of an ambiguous term like toxins. What, is, what am I, exactly am I talking about? I'm really talking about chemicals, right? So things like pesticides, herbicides, heavy metals that may be in the food that we're consuming. So where do we get that? Obviously, you know, food that is grown non-organically can definitely have it. Particularly, you know, there's something that EPA puts out every year. It's called the clean 15 and the dirty dozen. So there are certain types of vegetables, certain types of produce that are highly sprayed with pesticides and herbicides. And that's typically going to be things that have a real fragile outer layer. So you think about like a berry, really easy for a pest to eat a berry, right? Or like cucumbers or something like that, as opposed to an avocado, right? Avocado has got a really hard outer layer, you know, there's very little need for herbicides and pesticides on that. Garlic, garlic is like a natural, uh, you know, pesticide in a sense. In fact, if you grow garlic in your garden, it helps repel pests. So, you, you know, you don't need onions. You don't need as much chemicals, you know, in a sense, the farmers don't. So you try to, you try to stay away from the dirty dozen, or at least you get those foods organically. That's what you're trying to do. And then animal products, because animals, if they're eating genetically modified corn and soy. And that genetic, genetically modified corn and soy is highly sprayed with chemicals, including glyphosate, which is a really 
dangerous chemical that's found in the in the um, pesticide Roundup. It's been linked with cancer and all different types of unwanted health conditions. And so the animals will now bioaccumulate those chemicals in their system. And then we will consume them if we're eating their meat and dairy. So we want to go with organic grass-fed animal products, super important there. And do our best, you know, like I don't get everything organic. Uh, it's hard to, you know, just because of what's available, but you do your best to try to get it organic um, or you cut the outer layer or you wash it in vinegar or something like that. So you try to reduce the toxins. I think that's the first thing is the education gap, getting people to make those switches and those changes. And then from there, when you're going into a low carb state, your insulin levels start to drop. So if you're normally eating a high carbohydrate diet, you have high insulin. When you have high insulin, you retain sodium. So we hear about like salt is bad, salt causes high blood pressure. It does when somebody has a state of insulin resistance and they have a high fasting insulin level. However, if you're on a low carb diet and your insulin drops the way it should, then you actually excrete a lot of sodium. So you actually need more salt. And so a lot of times people are avoiding salt or minimizing their salt consumption and they end up really dizzy and they end up with actually a condition called the keto flu where they feel bad. They just feel almost like they have a flu, really fatigued. And this is very common. Uh, it's commonly associated with electrolyte deficiency. So for a lot of people when you're going low carb, just taking a little bit of salt and putting it on your tongue. And I recommend like a good sea salt, good quality salt, or like a pink Himalayan salt or Redmond's Real Salt is a good brand, Celtic sea salt. Putting a little bit of that on your tongue, salting your foods. You don't, you don't have to over salt them, but salt them to a, you know, a good flavor. Eating trace mineral rich foods, things like avocados, wild caught uh, fish or seafood. Seaweed is a great trace mineral source. Grass-fed meats, like I talked about, really good. Leafy greens. So those bone broth can be another really good source of, um, of sodium and minerals in general. You just have a greater need for minerals, especially in the early stages as your body tries to adapt. And that's extremely important. So many people have bad bad experience trying to go low carb because they're not getting the salts. So those are the first two big things, just the education gap in what they should have in their diet. Number two is not getting enough salts and minerals. Number three is actually poor bile flow. And so we need bile in order to emulsify fats. And so for many people, they're not producing enough bile or they've got their bile ducts are really congested. And it often goes hand in hand with poor stomach acid production. You see, when we eat food, stomach acid sterilizes the food. So our normal pH of our stomach is roughly between three and roughly three to 3.5 or so at rest. When we eat food, we need to get that down to somewhere between 1.5 to 2.2 pH, which is actually very energy demanding. It's actually a really big jump. Like neutral pH is seven. We would think about water as like a neutral pH at seven. So it's we're always in an acidic state in our stomach, but we need to get really super acidic, okay? In order, to, especially to break down meat, like steak or something like that. We need to get really acidic. If we don't, then we don't sterilize. There's certain bacteria that they can't survive that kind of pH. And anything we eat, even if it was like freshly cooked, it's going to have pathogens on it. It's going to have bacteria on it. And so the stomach acid's job is to break down the bacteria that can't survive in a high acid state. So it does that. It also activates certain proteins that help us absorb vitamin B12 and iron and zinc 
and it also breaks down protein so we can digest it effectively. So we need a really good strong acid in order to open up the sphincter, the little muscle between our stomach and our small intestine. It's called the pyloric sphincter. If our acid gets low enough, it opens up that sphincter, you know, where we metabolize the protein well. And now the acid, the acidic bolus, the bolus is a term we use for the pre you know, basically the partially digested food with the acid on it. Bolus now slides into the small intestine and it hits certain receptors in the small intestine that now activates, activate the release of bile. Bile is very alkalizing. The small intestine needs an alkaline environment. So now bile gets released. Bile is also a sterilizing agent. It kills the bacteria that love acid but don't do well in an alkaline environment. It also emulsifies the fats. So it surrounds the fats kind of like soap on grease and breaks those down into very small molecules that now can get into the bloodstream and get to cells and we can use them for energy. So we really need this good stomach acid production, this release of bile. A lot of people, because they're stressed, they're eating on the go. I always say stress is the antagonist to good digestion. When you're in a state of fight or flight or stress, your body's not concerned with good digestion. It's concerned with survival. We need to be in a parasympathetic state, a relaxed state to digest food well. That will activate the vagus nerve, which activates the production of stomach acid and bile. So taking a few deep breaths before you eat, praying before you eat, being in a state of gratitude before you eat, all really good ideas because that stimulates that parasympathetic nervous system. Now you can produce the stomach acid and bile that you need. Also, you know, just smelling your foods, right? So putting on, having your food have a great smell, right? Putting on aromatic herbs like oregano, basil, thyme, things like that will actually get you salivating and producing these juices before you start to eat your food. So I, all those things are very important. And for some people, they're just, they're, their system is damaged or they have infections that don't allow them to produce enough stomach acid. So in some cases, certain supplements, taking maybe apple cider vinegar before a meal can really help stimulate stomach acid and bile flow, taking betaine HCL, which is a stomach acid supplement, along with ox bile, which is a bile supplement can be really helpful. A lot of people, their bile ducts are really congested, the bile ducts in the liver and the gallbladder, and they're not able to shoot out enough bile, or it's it can even be painful in some cases for them to shoot out enough bile. So we need to thin the bile. It's really thick. Insulin resistance creates thick bile. We need to thin the bile out so there are certain herbs, things like artichoke, dandelion, milk thistle, right? Those things, ginger, really help to thin the bile. And there's also bile salts, which are amino acids that connect to the bile. They connect to the cholesterol in the bile and they make it thin. And so that's things like choline and taurine. Uh, which really help with that process. So in some cases we need supplementation, we need to drink you know, some of these herbal teas and things like that in order to get the bile moving. So when people don't have a good experience with keto, it's usually, I would say 90% of the time, it's because either number one, they you know, don't understand how to do it right. Number two, they are not getting enough electrolytes, particularly sodium. And number three, they are not producing enough stomach acid and bile to be able to break down the protein and fat effectively in their diet. Yeah, it's funny. It's the opposite is what a lot of people are told. You know, take you're producing too much stomach acid. That's why you don't digest. And, you know, take these proton pump inhibitors and acid suppressors. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like the opposite of what needs to be done. I mean, I've yes. I tried literally um, a supplement called HCL. And yep. They have betaine and pepsin and a bunch of other things in it. And I take that. It actually increases my stomach acid and I digest better. 
Yeah, exactly, Richard. See, when somebody has acid reflux, most of the time, it's very, very, very rare that somebody's actually producing too much acid. Typically, they're not producing enough acid. So what ends up happening is the bolus sits in their stomach. It doesn't move the pyloric sphincter, which connects the stomach to the small intestine, does not open. So now the food just sits there and acid and whatnot and gas starts to build up because of the the breakdown process. And the gas pushes open the esophageal sphincter. And now the there's still acid in the stomach. Let's say it's, you know, three, three pH, which is really acidic, but not acidic enough to, to break down the protein effectively. That acid will jump into the esophagus. And the lower esophage, uh, lower part of the esophagus, the tissue there doesn't have a mucous membrane like the stomach does. So it's not meant to be able to handle high acidic environment. So that can create burning, right? Which creates that acid reflux feeling. Right. Or in some cases, some people just don't even feel the pain. They have silent acid reflux, but this is really common. And uh, actually getting your acid lower, like you're doing, taking BTN HCL with pepsin actually gets the acid where it's supposed to be. Now the bolus, instead of rotting in the stomach, goes into the small intestine. The bile is released. We don't get gas build up in the stomach and we're able to digest our food more effectively. We don't get acid reflux. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, any common phenomena in terms of eating and digesting that? People could adopt to help themselves. Like you said, take a few deep yep. breaths before you eat. You know, try to relax. Uh, anything during the meal, after the meal. What else can people do to make yeah. meals yeah, progress sure. more uh, smoothly? For sure. Well, yeah, all definitely all the things that I talked about there. And in my book, Keto Metabolic Breakthrough, I go through all this in detail. I actually show you if you're getting labs done, how to look at the labs and see if you have low stomach acid, poor bile flow, things like that. You can also do some home tests. So these are easy home tests that you can do. One is what you call the steak test. You eat a six ounce steak and that's it. Just eat a six ounce steak. See how you feel for the next three hours. Now, you know, as long as, you know, this, you ate this steak, it was well cooked. You should feel great. You should feel fine. I mean, it's not, you're not overeating. You should be able to break that down, metabolize it well. If you notice you have more acid reflux, you feel bloated, brain fog, you have low energy, you have pain that flares up in your body. These are all signs you're not producing enough stomach acid. So we call that the steak test. There's another test you can do. It's called the broccoli test. You get some steamed broccoli, big bowl of steamed broccoli. You eat it. You wait three hours and you see how you feel. Again, broccoli, healthy food, right? You should feel good. If you're noticing bloating, if you're noticing that you know, you're burping, that uh, you're cramping, you have more pain in your body, you feel fatigued, that's a sign you probably have bacterial overgrowth in your small intestine and it's fermenting the broccoli, the, the fiber in the broccoli uh, too quickly in your system, creating too much inflammation in your gut and too much uh, gas production and you're not getting the nutrients you need and all that stresses your system and you get fatigued. So that's the broccoli test. And the third test is what we call a fat bomb test. So if you just Google fat bomb, you'll see a whole bunch of different recipes. And these recipes are basically keto recipes. Or they're, they're these little things that are like basically coconut, butter, coconut oil, and sometimes chocolate or something like that. And it's roughly like 200 to sometimes 400 calories, primarily fat, primarily long chain fats, right? Like coconut fats. And so you consume that again, you just consume, you know, let's say 400 calories of that or so. I mean, you should feel great. That's not a too heavy of a calorie load. You really should be able to digest it uh, fine. If you're noticing burping, you know, all again, all of these types of symptoms, you just feel worse when you eat that. 
and, and that was the only thing you ate, that's a sign you're not getting good bile flow, right? So your bile ducts in your liver and your gallbladder are probably congested. So this is just a simple test you can do at home uh, to see where the breakdown is. And for some cases, you might have multiple breakdowns, right? And you really need to repair your digestive system. Are there any subtle or not so subtle signs that someone's really uh, you know, not doing well with digestion that would confuse them, that they wouldn't think it's obvious that that means they have a problem digesting? Yeah. So, I mean, really, if you're noticing after a meal that you feel fatigued, even though you had a decent night's sleep the night before, you, you feel like you need a nap. Okay. That could be a sign. It could be insulin resistance, but it also could be a sign that your digestive system is being burdened. Um, and so that could be a, a, an issue there. Uh, if you eat food and you notice an increase in pain, that you notice brain fog, could be a sign that you're either having impaired digestion or possibly a sensitivity to something you ate. So those are all things to look out for. I mean, really, you should eat food. Food should help you have, uh, you know, better energy, right? So you should you eat. You should notice really almost no change, and then you know you're able to go right into your day and you feel good. Um, and so if you're noticing unwanted symptoms shortly after meals. Again, could be a sign of food sensitivity or poor digestion. Okay. What should people do if they want to learn from you? And at what point should they approach you to work with you? Do they read your books first? Uh, what's your recommendation on the path to getting yeah. to know you and to you know, interacting with your stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, I have some great books, Keto Metabolic Breakthrough and The Fasting Transformation. We also have some great digital programs too, or, which are kind of like DIY programs, give you meal plans and all kinds of you know great information with lots of infographics and if you guys go to my website, drjockers.com, you'll find really the best in-depth articles along with infographics on pretty much every health topic you can imagine. So we've, we, we've created like a Google for health topics. So definitely check that out. I also do podcasts on a lot of these topics. So check all of that out. And then yes, we do do functional health coaching. Now, I personally don't work with patients anymore, but I have health coaches that do where we interpret lab work, right? Where we basically look at labs and we customize specific nutrition supplement plans based around those labs, comprehensive blood analysis, along with uh, oftentimes a urine test called an organic acid test. We also look at the microbiome, look for pathogens, parasites, yeast, bad bacterial overgrowth, things like that. Um, and so we, we have a section on our website that that talks about our coaching. Um, so, you know, I, the coaching I say is for somebody who's already made lifestyle changes. Like you've tried to change your diet. A lot of the things I already talked about, and yet you're hitting a plateau. You're just not getting better. You need to hire a coach. For those of you guys out there that, you know, maybe haven't made really good nutrition changes, just start there. Start, start making nutrition changes, really prioritizing good sleep, keeping your stress down, having a regular exercise routine and um, trying to get good sun exposure, right? Positive attitude, you know, these kinds of things that are just healthy. And for many people, they notice significant changes from that. But again, if you're hitting that plateau, it's a good time for a coach. Very good. So David, what's the best way, the first thing for them to find, what, go to your website or what's your recommendation? Yeah, go to drjockers.com. That's going to be the best, best place. You can search any particular health topic you're interested in. We have got at least one, if not a number of really in-depth articles on that particular topic. So that'll be the best place. We have some free gifts, you know, some great PDFs. We have a brain regeneration guide, which is extremely popular where I talk about you know, really how to heal brain cells uh, in depth. And so we go through a lot of, a lot of great information in that PDF along with lots of images and things like that. So that's been a real popular download that a lot of people have been taking advantage of. Very good. Dave, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Richard. Appreciate everything that you're doing. 
If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.